Debbie Georges. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about the Democrat debate doozies. Dr. Robert Lawson, co-author of the book, Socialism Sucks, joins me in the studio. The coup via impeachment update and LeBron's dangerous ignorance. And I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome again to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. In today's first five, I just want to tell you a few doozies from last night's Democrat presidential debate. To be perfectly honest, I didn't watch it. I just watched little highlights today. But I want to start by saying that this debate is occurring in a context where America's economy is about as strong as as it has been in decades. We have fabulously low unemployment rates. We have renewed trade deals that are preferable, or at least favorable and fair to America. We have a president beginning the steps of securing our border, so we're going to have a, a stable workforce based on people who have a legal right to be here. Economic numbers in all sorts of ways are great. And so the Democrats are trying to paint this as a horrible time in America, a horrible time for families who should be outraged and jump into all of their big government economic controls that they have in mind. So against that backdrop, I'm gonna play just a few quick clips from last night. This one, there is one that is is the winner I'm gonna save until the end. But I first want to uh, play Tom Steyer, who is a B billionaire, B as in boy billionaire, played, uh, had this little uh, clip to say about the income gap being unfair, what he would do about it. So if we have Tom Steyer ready to roll. Senator Sanders is right. There have been 40 years where corporations have bought this government and those 40 years have meant a 40 year attack on the rights of working people and specifically on organized labor. And the results are as shameful as Senator Sanders says, both in terms of assets and in terms of income. It's absolutely wrong, it's absolutely undemocratic and unfair. I was one of the first people on this stage to propose a wealth tax. I would undo every Republican tax cut for rich people and major corporations. So that was Mr. Tom Steyer, the B billionaire. He's also one of the extreme environmentalist guys uh, way down the path with the New Deal. The other clip I wanted to play to start off our discussion today was from Bernie Sanders, who, by the way, many of the kind of commentators after the debate said that pretty much Elizabeth Warren is viewed to have won. She is apparently the first, uh, she's polling the highest right now, and that Bernie Sanders was actually second. So Bernie and Warren uh, in a debate about who's gonna become their the presidential candidate. I think Biden he, Biden's gonna get forced out in my opinion. But in any case, I wanna have, if you could, Matt, the very wonderful producer, play a clip with Bernie Sanders and his views on income inequality. When you have a half a million Americans sleeping out on the street today. When you have 87 people, 87 million people uninsured or underinsured, when you got hundreds of thousands of kids who cannot afford to go to college and millions struggling with the oppressive burden of student debt, and then you also have three people owning more wealth than the bottom half of American society. That is a moral and economic outrage. And the truth is, we cannot afford to continue 
this level of income and wealth inequality, and we cannot afford a billionaire class whose greed and corruption has been at war with the working families of this country for 45 years. So if you're asking me, do I think we should demand that the wealthy start paying the wealthiest, top one-tenth of one percent, start paying their fair share of taxes so we can create a nation and a government that works for all of us? Yes, that's exactly what I believe. I meant to tell you, the question posed to him was, you know, Senator Sanders, you previously said you think that there should be no billionaires in America. Do you really believe that? Is your tax system designed essentially to eliminate all billionaires? That's the question he was answering. Well, it's a really interesting thing because these two questions that we just played, the answers played by the candidates, ties into the guests we have joining us today in studio, the uh, co-author of Socialism Sucks, because I really want to talk about the popularity of socialism among millennials and trending today among Americans overall, and how valid or invalid are these concerns that the Democrats are posing, essentially arguing that the uh, income inequality, uh, wealth taxes, in fact, I meant to mention both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are proposing massive wealth taxes. And to be clear what that means, it's not a high income tax rate. It is about the idea, if you have your your overall family wealth is above some level it's basically a if you have more than this money much money send it in they they have different formulas about it and different ideas about it but the basic premise is you should be able to tax wealth so my friends in an economy flying high unemployment low, more and more people confident that they're gonna find a job and they finish college, their kids are gonna find a job and they finish college, that we have a country where jobs are coming back here, among the main messages out of the out of tune American Democrat Party is somehow America's grotesquely unfair. And I told you I was saving the best clip for last. I just, I, I can't resist playing this though. So this is Cory Booker asked about impeachment please if you can just play matt the wonderful cory booker's answer on impeachment uh, you have said that president trump's quote moral vandalism disqualifies him from being president can you be fair in an impeachment trial please respond so first of all we must be fair we, we are talking about ongoing proceedings to remove a sitting president for office this has got to be about patriotism and not partisanship Look, I share the same sense of urgency of everybody on this stage. I understand the outrage that we all feel, but we have to conduct this process in a way that is honorable, that brings our country together, doesn't rip us apart. Okay, here's my last point in today's first five. That is an insane answer, insane. He's saying we're going to conduct impeachment in a way that brings the country together when Donald Trump voters are above 90% still in support of him. There's only two explanations. Either he gives an answer like that because he's trying to persuade the American people that plant the seed, everybody's on board, impeachment's gonna happen, let's get rid of him, or he lives in a Democrat bubble in Washington and he actually has no idea that millions of Americans are outraged at the idea of impeaching this president over zip, zero, nada, nothing. A story we'll get back to later today. But that, my friends, is today's first five.
So we're going to turn, and I mentioned at the start of the show, we have a guest in studio. I want to show you his book. The book is right here. It looks just like this. It's called Socialism Sucks. Two Economists Drink Their Way Through the Unfree World. In studio joining us, we have one of the two co-authors, Dr. Robert Lawson. He is the director of the O'Neill Center for Global Markets and Freedom at the Cox School of Business at SMU. Bob, welcome. Hi, Debbie. Good to be here. <laughs> Glad you are here. So, well, that was a fun intro. Just, I was getting, getting ready for the show today. So, let me start with: Is it a? If you're, let me just say, you're a free market capitalist kind of guy. I am. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. I have so, the full and wider chair in economic freedom. That's my title. Say it again. Full and wider chair in economic freedom is my okay. actual job title. Love that. Well, we're going to hit a lot of points in your book. We want to start with: What is your sense of the impact? on the economy of a wealth tax. Does that make things fairer for poor people? Well, when I heard both of the first two clips, the thing I heard the saying was, they're getting rich at our expense. I mean, both uh, both those politicians who have already forgotten their names, I'm trying to forget <laughs> politicians' names. I won't they, tell you. They, they, they have this idea that the rich are getting richer, and that's true, the rich are getting richer. You can see it in the data, the top uh, one, 10%, however you measure it, they're getting richer. The poor is not getting poorer, that's a myth. But the idea, the underlying idea that they have is that we're, they're getting richer at someone else's expense. And I just don't see that. We live in a market economy. And for the most part, you know, the Walton family, the Koch, the evil Koch brothers, the Bezos, all these names that we now, we all know, household names, these billionaires, multi-billionaires, they got rich by providing you and me with stuff that we like. You know, they deliver books to my house in less than a day now. Yep. Uh, I get cheap energy in my home to keep me warm in the winter and cool in the summer. Uh, these people are enriching our lives and, and they're actually skimming just a tiny fraction of the value they're creating for us. So that's the fundamental sort of myth that the these politicians are, are peddling is this idea that they're getting rich. They are getting rich, but the idea that they're getting rich at our expense, that's the problem. And that's just not true. I love your point too, and you make it in the book too, about all the things that these rich and evil individuals and corporations actually provide. So when you go to the grocery store, there are 17 different choices of kinds of apples, if that's what you want, if you're into, or shoes, clothing, um, house, house building materials. It just they make life better. They make the American standard of living higher and better. So punishing them doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Indeed, you know, when you go to the store, you see, you know, one of the things about socialist countries is you see nothing in the stores. If, but if you do see something in the stores, you'll see like one kind of thing or two kinds of things. That's the, the greatest difference between socialism and capitalism for a man on the street, just sort of walking to everyday life, is the utter lack of variety uh, in, in your daily existence, which we, we, we have this amazing world that we live in. And, and we take it for granted. I do want to get to the book and then the millennials in our country, but in the book part of it, you and your buddy, as you say, as the subtitle says, you drank your way through the world, but you and your buddy traveled to a variety of countries, we're gonna talk about all of them, essentially assessing their economic system and the well-being of their culture and their society. So, first of all, who's that? Is this your idea, this drink your way to all the countries? I think Brent, Ben, Ben's a professor at Texas Tech, uh, guns up, I think they say. Uh, he texted me, I think he was drunk on an airplane, and he says, hey Bob, let's let's do a book about something we both love, which is traveling and, and, and drinking, frankly. So, uh, it was kind of a, you know, I wanted to go to Cuba too, and, and just because I wanted to go see what it was like. Uh, see the kind of crazy for my own self. And I figured if we write a book, we could write it off our taxes. So that was kind of the- It's a very good point. Okay, actually one thing I want to mention before we get into the book is this. So you are at SMU and you also are part of publishing. You do publish this Index of Economic Liberty. And I, I meant to write the exact name, Economic Freedom Index. 
You work on that every year, right? Yeah, I'm the co-author of the Fraser Institute's Economic Freedom of the World Index. It's an economic freedom index. It comes out every year. Um, gets some notoriety in the press, but it's a big scholarly project. We get you know thousands of citations from other scholars. It's a uh, we do. We just put a number on how free you are economically. So Hong Kong is the freest economy. Venezuela is last. So you rank countries in the world, and you bank, um, rank them on economic freedom. So I, 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 we are going to get to the book. I swear, but I love the idea you do this. In fact, you know what? I have a copy of this at home, and today I was going to find it and bring it. It's not the. It's not this year's. It was several years ago, but it's the coolest thing. So much information. But so, how do you rank countries? How do you? convey to people who, what has, who, which country has the most economic it's, freedom? It's horribly dull. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, we, we gather data. I mean, we just go to the IMF and the World Bank, we get data on tax rates, tariff rates, uh, inflation rates. Uh, we gather some data on like the security of property rights, how fair the judges are in settling disputes. How many days does it take to move a container into the port? How long does the customs duties and process take? So the flow of the economy. Yeah. So it's basically how free are people to buy and sell and exchange, hire workers, fire workers, import, export, invest, start a business. It's different data that we've got for large numbers of countries now. Uh, data that we and we just sort of collect all these raw numbers. That I use a, you know a algebra, <laughs> and yep. we we turn these into index numbers. We average the numbers, and you get an index for the for the for the countries of the world. So, how many countries are in it? 162. 162. Right yeah. Dare I ask where America is? Uh, we're back up to fifth. We had dropped, we usually were third. It was Hong Kong and Singapore and the United States. And then starting in 2000, the US began to slide down in ranking and rating. Uh, it went down to as low as 16th, and it's come back up a little bit uh, in the last few years, although our data are still two years old. So, we, we just released the 2017 numbers for this, uh, year's. For, for this year's report. Okay. Part of what you assess, I would guess, is government regulation of business. Is that right? Yeah, government spending's up uh, and government regulation is up. Those are the two big areas where the U.S. ratings were taking a, a little bit of a hit. And okay. some of that's gotten better uh, in the last, you know, four years, let's say. So if someone wanted to find this, I, I'm, I'm, I am distracted from your book by this idea of touting this in economic freedom index because I do think people have vague ideas or general ideas, but the concept of an economist or not just you, but others too, actually gathering data and, and telling the world how things are ranked is, is really inviting and, and uh, um, factual. So if someone wanted to read it, where do they go to get that? Uh, freetheworld.com, that's the shortest way to find it. Freetheworld.com or just economic freedom of the world. Yeah. Okay, so I love that, that you published that. It's really, really great. So this book, Socialism Sucks, um, I have some stickies here. I wanted to ask you certain things about it, but to start with, you talked about in here what socialism is, and I was going to say, that term gets bandied about a lot, and, and in fact, you'll see people just talking about some policy online they don't like, like, oh, the government you know, regulated this or changed this tax rate. That's socialist. So how do you define socialism in the way as you're talking about this in this book? I define it the way Karl Marx defined it. Uh, it means the state is going to control the means of production. That is to say the land, the labor, the capital, the things that we have, the people, the labor, the capital, the, this stuff is going that we're going to have. It's going to be controlled by a central body, a central plan, uh, which means the state. So state control of the means of production is what socialism means. It's what it's, al it's, what it's always meant. Uh, maybe until fairly recently where the word is now starting to uh, evolve a little bit, but in a way that I think is actually adding, adding a lot of confusion. You do. I was going to argue for embellishing the term, but yeah, anyway, yeah. I'll tell you that in a moment. So you only listed three countries you view as socialists right now. It was North Korea, I'm not looking at my notes, trying to remember them, uh, Cuba, North Korea, and Venezuela. Venezuela. Yeah. 
Okay, so how could China not be socialist? Well, uh, so what's happened in China, China, the title for the chapter for, on China is called Fake Socialism. Uh, and it still has some elements of socialism. The United States has elements of socialism, if you think about it. But um, what they don't have anymore is a central plan. They allow private enterprise, they allow private companies, they have a lot of state-run companies. But for the most part, those state-run companies are selling their products on markets with unregulated prices. They compete in with- In China, you're talking China. about, wow. Uh, and they're competing with private companies as well. And the key thing is there's no central plan. There's no, there's no group of economists in bad suits sitting in Beijing deciding you know, what kinds of, how many ball bearings the economy makes, how many trucks the economy makes, how many tractors. That, they, they gave that up uh, 25 years ago. Uh, and to me, that's the lack of a central plan. Even though there's still a lot of government involvement in the economy, that lack of a central plan moves you out of the socialism box and puts you into the, I'm not going to call it a free market economy, but it puts you in the sort of a not socialist box. So somehow kind of socialist free market meld. Yeah, yeah. And, and the reality is that's what the index does too. The reality is all countries are a meld, even our own. So. Okay. Yeah. So I will say, I use this expression on this show, and I should have asked you this ahead of time, <laughs> but I use the expression that communism, pure communism, is just kind of socialism with no way out. I mean, socialism is the economic system in which communism operates. Is that, uh, do you agree with yeah, that? Yeah, I, mean, I suppose. I mean, the word communism has different meanings, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, Karl Marx actually meant it in a completely different way than, than we would we would call it. Like the Communist Party took that word communist from Karl Marx. And yep. co communism to Karl Marx was some sort of future, utopic land of milk and honey where right, we're right. all going to just break bread together and love each other or something. And, <laughs> and everyone and, has and, everything and, they but need. That but that was going to come after socialism, according to Marx. So yeah. we never got to the communism part, according to the Marxist theory. Uh, but today, when you say communism, what you usually mean is a hard socialist country that's combined with a totalitarian sort of dictatorship. Yeah. yeah. Well, the idea in communist countries today, in part, is that no other political party is permitted. Right. So you really can't get outside of their control. But one of the things we talk about in the book, and one of the things that Friedrich Hayek talked about, and Milton Friedman talked about, two great economist heroes of mine, is how hard it is to try to combine total control of the economy without also running people's lives in, in, in their yes, exactly. and freedom of speech and things like that. I think that is why the term socialism gets continues to be broadened, or people's use of it. People see in America, they see the government, especially in the previous administration and other ones, the growing power of the centralized federal government controlling more of industry, and they're loosely saying, even though the government doesn't own the industry, right. Through regulation, they're strangling it, or they're extremely controlling it. And I mean, I, I, I think it is a good idea. I'm, I'm pretty much of a purist in language. And I like actual meanings of words. And so I, I, you're right about what socialism means. But there's something about the mindset of the growing power over the federal government of the federal government over our economy that's trending towards socialism. Do you agree with that? Oh, I, I totally agree. Yeah, we're definitely moving towards socialism, towards the road to serfdom, to use free, free yes. high, uh, Hayek's term. So yeah, and that's what, again, the index kind of is a scale, like how far down that socialism trail are you? And there's and there's no real bright line where you go from not socialist to socialist, but uh, you know, the word you know, has to have some meaning. And so if we yeah. wanted to define it in a way that was the classical way, which was still state control and, and central planning. 
Um, okay. That doesn't mean that I'm happy with uh, the like Sweden's of the world, which are not socialist countries. That was my uh, next topic. Go uh, ahead. <laughs> so well, that's the title of the chapter: Not Socials of Sweden. Yep. Uh, there, there's no central plan in Sweden. Uh, the, the people live in private homes, private landlords. Prices are unregulated. The pri- Volvo's a private company. Uh, it's a market economy. Now their, their taxes are really high, and we found that out when we're drinking beer because the beer is really <laughs> expensive. It's very good, and actually that's a tell. If it's good beer, you're not in a socialist country uh, because socialist countries' beer is terrible. Um, but the beer was good in Sweden. Make a know of that. <laughs> but it was really, really expensive. So what you've got yeah. there is a market economy with f- taxes that are you know 50% higher than what we're used to here in the states. Okay, so Sweden, I want to mention in part because it's Bernie Sanders' favorite country, um, probably even more than the United States. He's just always touting Sweden. So, and he calls it socialist, but you know, you kind of said it, but why is Sanders inaccurate to call Sweden socialist? I got two things about, well, one, the Swedes themselves don't like to be called socialist because again, it's private companies. Of all those private, uh, Swedish firms are making products and there's no Swedish economists deciding how many cars Volvo makes or what color they paint them or you know they're not assigning workers to jobs there's no central plan uh, now when you make a product and sell it and earn a profit they're going to tax a good portion of that profit uh, but they're not making those production and economic decisions for the firms okay. and for the for the workers like you would in a socialist economy now i think bernie is a, frankly a liar bernie knows what socialism is uh, he went to the Soviet Union for his honeymoon, which is frankly insane. Okay. Weird, yes. <laughs> uh, and he came home and he liked it. He, he talked about how good it was. So for him today, uh, you know, 25, 30 years later, to say, well, socialism really means Sweden. When he actually went to socialist countries and saw it up close and personal and liked what he saw, for him today sort of changed his tune. I think he's just being a, a typical politician, frankly, and he's lying to us. I think when Bernie says socialism, he understands what it means. He means it meant Russian-style so- socialism. And I think he's baiting and sweet swishing us, to be perfectly honest. I think that that sounds, that rings true. I mentioned before we started the show that in high school, um, I got to go to Russia while it was still communist. And one thing I noticed there, and it, I wonder if you notice this in your assessment of countries as they are, have more and more degrees of socialism, the whole country, it, uh, Moscow as an example, under communism, it just was gray. The people's clothing was gray. The stores were dank. The appearance of the items for sale. And it's kind of like, I want to get to this kind of, in a moment of this kind of mental impact of socialism, but the mere power of the government to control the economy dulls down what is produced. Do you agree with that? I don't think there's any question about it. I mean, to take an example from Cuba, we went to Cuba. It's a functioning socialist economy in the sense that they aren't starving to death. Yep. Um, um, and they're doing okay. But when you go into a store, you'll, there's, there's two kinds of beer, <laughs> Bucanero and Cristal. And, and tomorrow there'll be two types of beer. And the day after that, it's the same two types. Your whole life, you'll go through your whole life and they're only gonna have two types of beer. They don't import any beers, they don't allow imports. And they, the central planners decided to only make two. There's a certain dreariness or certain sameness, yes. a sameness to that to that life. We were only there a week, uh, and frankly, we, we were desperate for variety for another uh, beer. in food, and, and not just beer, but in food. Uh, yep. There's no salt. Uh, I mean, yes. bring your own salt if you go to Cuba. It's my advice as a tourist. I mean, it is it is a dreary, bland existence. Now, the Cubans themselves are a lively folk, and, and, and their music's famous, and hanging out with Cubans is great fun. But And so they make the best with what they have. But it is, compared to the, the sort of liveliness of a market economy, 
Um, it, it's really quite shabby and, and dreary. So in Cuba, you say the government, is, it really is a centrally planned economy. So if a private citizen wanted to say, you know what, I could make a better beer. I know a better formula. I want my own beer company. You're just not allowed to do that. No, you would never be allowed to do that. Now, they do allow some limited private enterprise in two areas. Housing, they allow some private homes to be rented out. People can rent out their flats or a back room. They're called casas particulares. And then there's also private restaurants now. They're hard to find because they don't have big advertising signs. You, it just looks like a bombed out building and you walk in and there's a really nice restaurant in there. Uh, and that's those two parts of the economy, which are tourist uh, driven. They're, yeah. Uh, they they actually work great. I mean, we had some pretty good meals. Again, it was a little bland. The food pr- supply is pretty pretty much controlled by the government. But the Casas Particulares were quite nice. We did stay in some government hotels and uh, just uh, I've never stayed in a hotel as, as disgusting, frankly, as what I saw in, in government hotels in Cuba. Oh, yeah, I can tell you. I, mean, I was only in high school, but I remember the government hotels in Russia. Just yeah. downright creepy. Just, just creepy. And dark and my other sense of uh just kind of the psychological impact of a really government controlled economy it's not just that you have limited choices in beer and sneakers or all sorts of uh, consumer goods you might want to buy but there becomes a sense of dependency on the government a and i, I remember when soviet union when finally the wall fell and they were going to become free or they at least got rid of the communists at least by in name there were, there were reports about the idea that people, they didn't know how to be free. Yeah. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? That, that oh. they didn't know how to function. Yeah, there's, there's no question about, about that, that sort of dependency that gets developed. And I mean, uh, if I could switch to another country we went to, Venezuela, one of the things, I mean, and of course, they are not surviving. They are literally people losing 20, 30, 40 pounds on average uh, in a year. People are borderline starving in Venezuela. And the government has these, you know, these ration cards that they can yeah. give you, and that's that's literally how you survive till tomorrow. Uh, and getting those cards, but getting that card means you've got to kowtow to the to the party line. You've got to show up to the rallies when when you're told to show up. You've got to vote the way you're supposed to vote when it comes time to vote. Because if you don't, that ration card goes away, and, and you will you'll be eating garbage if you're lucky. And that that's not it's not just it's it's dependency. People become dependent on those those handouts. But it also in, creates this incredibly toxic power that the yeah. people who have those ration cards to give out, that they yeah. have over your life. And let's face it, we're not all saints. And some of these people, not some, uh, lots of these people are, are going to be using that power to enrich themselves and to really harm, harm these people. Yeah, I had a friend who, um, her mother was from Cuba and went back to Cuba with her mother in recent years to visit family. She wanted to wait till Fidel was gone, but he's gone and anyway, she was talking about still in the neighborhood she grew up in, my friend the American visiting with his relatives over there and she said in the house, because my friend works in politics, so they asked her something about how she was and she started talking about politics and they turned the television up really loudly and they said there are still people there's a word for it, I can't think of it, but neighbors whose job it is, who've committed to the communist yeah. government to listen in and report. Well, I heard over in this house, they're talking about this. I mean, they're afraid of their neighbors. Yeah. This is getting off economics, but. No, no, but it's related though, because people want to talk about the idea of democratic socialism, and we think that's a myth. You can have socialism, but you can't have democratic socialism, because when you empower people with that much power over your livelihoods, uh, you are going to empower corrupts. It's going to do. Uh, it's going to create an environment where the politicians who are in control of resources 
uh, control your lives too. Yeah, I do want to get to your tenants at the Democrat Socialist Conference in Chicago. I did Great a fun. yeah. I actually did a story on that after that conference. Just the craziness. Yeah. But one more thing, we have several comments we could cover. I wanted to, if you could, share your uh, adventures. Uh, you call your chapter six "New Capitalism in Georgia." What was the story there? The uh, country of Georgia. Yeah, the country of Georgia. So I'm actually going to Georgia Friday uh, again oh, wow. this coming okay. week. Uh, I've been to Georgia 15 times. I'm kind of a obsessed with Georgia. Georgia phone. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, one of the cool things that happened, so after the Soviet Union broke up in 91, Georgia became an independent nation. They had a few civil wars. It was frankly chaos. The Russians cut off the gas. It was a bad situation for about 10 years. They had a little sort of second revolution called the Rose Revolution in 2004. The Rose Revolution. Rose Revolution. A politician named Saakashvili would hand out roses uh, to people on the streets because he was trying to emphasize that he was going to, it was a peaceful uh, revolution. And it was a peaceful revolution. Uh, but Shakashvili hired a crazy sort of free market libertarian named Kaha Bendikidze. And Kaha was a 400 pound hulking, imposing person who swore and he was just yeah. not a nice guy. Actually, was, I loved Kaha. Kaha died a few years ago. But, uh, and he, in a very short period of time, uh, transformed the Georgian economy into basically Milton Friedman land, <laughs> a, a free market haven. Now, it's still got a major major province a small country it's isolated russia's a hostile neighbor i was in the country when the russian war occurred in, in 08 uh, but georgia has been growing very rapidly and they are now a free market country and one of the continue with the alcohol metaphor the alcohol is not really the focus of the book but it's like a metaphor <laughs> yes, it is no <laughs> it's a running metaphor uh, is that georgia has become a great wine a wine country they have yeah. a, centuries old millennial old wine making tradition some of the oldest wines ever made on earth were georgian wines and they have great varieties that only exist there and they're bringing back these new the old varieties are bringing back the old winemaking methods and it's becoming a, a, a mecca for tourists now Okay, I love that, and I will, that's on our list, on our long list oh, of countries I'd like to visit. You go, I'll give you plenty of advice. I'm a big fan. Okay, I'll email you. I do want to mention for our listeners, I want to do one more little story here about uh, coverage of what's in the book related to the uh, conference in Chicago, the Democrat Socialists of America conference, or whatever it was called. For, is it, what was it called again? Actually, Socialist? ours was just the Socialist Conference. It wasn't so, the Democratic Socialists, it was just Socialism. Just Socialists. Okay, yeah. I, I do want to get to that. Um, but I want to mention for our listeners, in this upcoming election, there are many young people who are lured into the idea of socialism because it's sold to them by the Bernie Sanders, by the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as a utopia, as a thing that is just to be um, wished for and everything will be free and everything will be fair and no more mean rich people and no more, you don't have to resent people for wealth because you all have everything you need. And it's scary because, you know, I'm a, a, the vintage where we all used to always call the West, America, the free world. And we knew that was the opposite of socialism. We knew that was the opposite thing. And young people haven't been educated enough to understand this. So if you have relatives like this, I think you should give them this book for Christmas. Socialism sucks because it's fun to read. It's not a, you know, economics, pound you over the head, you know, rules and examples. It is a it is a actual rock rollicking trip through a variety of countries talking about really the impact of socialism filled inter, interspersed with really good um, data. So I want to, that's a great, great book. But I want to go back to, so socialism in America, I, I had two thoughts about that. Um, and there was, I guess this is a different conference. There was a Democrat socialist right. had their, had their yeah. thing too. In both cases, I was struck by the idea, the observation, and you mentioned here too, that people at that conference, they're there arguing for an economic system, or that the name of the thing is, but they have all sorts of 
bizarre, unrelated causes like they are, you know, abortion on demand and, and uh, government funded abortion. What is your do you have a thought about why people who would like socialism go off on all sorts of other leftist causes also? Well, I think this is a, a, a tactic that socialists through the ages have used is they find people who have or who are disaffected about a particular issue. Uh, whether it's racism or the environment or the abortion rights or whatever the the cause that you care about and they they say hey guess what we're socialists over here we care about that thing too you should come over and join us and it it's sort of the the gateway drug so abortion was a great example because yeah. i talked to lots of student uh, young people at the socialism conference in chicago this is about a year ago now and i ran into a lot of them who got into socialism through the through abortion and i'm like you know socialism to me again means the state is controlling the means of production whether or not you can or can't kill your baby <laughs> or whatever is not really a core i don't think marx talked about that yeah it's not I a core remember. concept of socialism i mean how, how where you come down on that is wherever you come down on it but it, it's not really related to socialism um, and so it was confusing to me but i think the socialists do a good a good job of reaching out to these uh, if you want to pejoratively call them social justice warriors, you reach out to these kids who, who care about something. And uh, I even sometimes cared about the same things that they cared about. I had some sympathies with them in some cases. Um, and they, they use that as, as a lure to, to get them into the fold. And then they try to, to bring him into the larger thing. It was a little bit of a slippery slope, kind of bait and switch kind of thing going on. Bait and switch yeah. is a term I was yeah. thinking of. It sure yeah. is. Yeah, and they get sucked in thinking they're... Yeah. Um, uh, because socialists said they're with me on X, and then yeah. they're all they're into that mess. Yeah. Well, this is really a great thing that you did to write this book in a fun way. You and your co-author, uh, fun way. And I and I guess one last question. So you're at SMU. I know that where you are at the Cox School, you guys are pretty much teaching free market things. But do you run across students who challenge you at SMU about? Come on, can't you admit there's some good things about socialism? And if they challenge you, what, how, what's your most persuasive argument? I don't personally, because I mostly teach graduate students, and MBA students are kind of self-selected out of that kind of thing. Although my colleagues who teach undergrads, they tell me they occasionally do run in. We run some reading group programs at SMU, uh, and we have undergrads in that. And But, you know, our, my... My view and what we, we, we experience is that the kids, even when they come into us who disagree, they're pretty fair. And we're like, hey, would you read this? And we'll talk about it. And uh, more or less, we, we, have a, we end up having a good conversation. I can't say we convert every student, you know, yeah. away. But but we haven't seen anything like what you see in the, you know, the press about uh, crazy left wing students, you know, screaming and yelling and protesting. We don't have any of that at SMU. In fact, we have a pretty good civil conversation. And that's the way it should be. That's actually what college is supposed to be all about, yeah. to have intelligent exchange of ideas. Yeah. Kind of lost that in some places. Well, Dr. Robert Lawson, Bob, I'm so glad you could come in. So glad you wrote this book. Again, for our listeners, there it is, Socialism Sucks. And thank you for coming in. What, what a just a great thing, a great contribution to the American political conversation about economics. It's a pleasure, great, thanks. Okay, thank you so much thanks. for coming in. Take care. Take care. Okay, folks, I'm turning to two other quick stories today. And if you listen all the time, you know that I can get through two stories in 10 minutes. That's right. Uh, I want to talk briefly about the um, coup update. We regularly talk about what's happened in Washington. The Democrats are just determined to bring forth this impeachment effort. Uh, and, you know, regardless of the fact that President Trump uh, hasn't done anything impeachable, and I think actually, I have to tell you, I think more and more people in the country are realizing that. They're kind of waiting to hear from the Democrats. What exactly are you impeaching him on? I think there is just growing recognition. They don't have anything 
to be talking about. I mean, they people hearing what Biden did in the Ukraine, they think somehow one conversation Trump had, and so the left is on, they're on fire trying to push this. So I was just gonna hit a couple of quick updates. Um, one is that Nancy Pelosi announced, I think this morning, that they are not going to have an impeachment vote. I think I told you yesterday that Nancy Pelosi had said they were gonna go ahead and hold a vote of the whole house on impeachment with the idea that they were going to maybe get this vote done this week and because she's pushing back against President Trump, whose lawyers sent this eight-page letter we went through a couple days ago. Lawyers said the White House is not cooperating with this impeachment inquiry until the Democrats follow the process and hold a vote for impeachment. The reason, and, and they don't want to do that. Pelosi doesn't want to do that. The reason I think it's good news that Pelosi said on Monday they were going to hold the vote, and then today or yesterday last night said, never mind, they're not. It's good news because what happened was the House was on recess and many Democrats went back to their home districts. I live in a district, if you can believe, I live in a district represented by a Democrat. I know the Democrats went back to their home districts and they asked their constituents, you know, kind of try to, you know, test the waters. What do you think? Should we go ahead and move toward impeachment? And the, um, I think that she, and then they had a caucus meeting after everyone's back in Washington, all these congressmen back and congresswomen met with Nancy Pelosi. And the outcome of that meeting was Pelosi saying, you know what, we're not going to have the vote. She knows she knows that it will hurt her party. She still knows this impeachment effort will hurt her party. She heard back from Democrats who went home to their districts that the people in America are telling their members of Congress, do not do this, it is not justified, knock it off. So she doesn't want to hold the vote. That was one good thing. Uh, next thing was the Democrats have changed the rules again. You know, they don't want, they changed, we talked about the four different rule changes they made already, made another rule change. So now what they're doing, this entire impeachment process is being done in secret. It's being done by the Democrats behind closed doors with witnesses coming, asking questions, uh, being asked questions and giving testimony, not transparent, not open to the public, not available for President Trump's lawyers to be there, not available for President Trump's legal team to be participating, to ask questions, you know, to have an actual fair process. And so this is why Trump said he's not going to, uh, to be involved. By the way, Giuliani also gave the same answer to the House, not playing this game with you, not going to to cooperate until you have an actual impeachment vote. So the uh, Democrats changed one more rule, which now is they're essentially treating these uh, private meetings, these closed door hearings with a witness and one person question, treating them as depositions and they're actually permitting, this is allowing one attorney at a time to ask questions and it permits the selective leaking, which you know they cannot wait to do. So they really, despite all of the American public's attention on how wrong this is and how out of control the Democrats are, they're still thinking they're going to push forward on this impeachment effort. I think it's very dangerous. I think that if you've been squawking to your member of Congress or your senator, keep squawking, keep talking, keep calling, because they really are not. Um, they're not going to stop. They have too much of the very far left driven to get Trump out at any cost, and they, the Democrats, Democrats can't figure out how to hold their base together without at least appearing to push forward on impeachment. One last thought on this, which is there was a hearing, uh, Adam Schiff, who is really the head henchman, or maybe you want to call Nancy Pelosi, you know, she's the 
persecutor in chief, but you know, the team, the henchmen, Adam Schiff is one of the major, major ones. He is chairing, he chairs the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And they were the ones holding a, a closed door, you know, not transparent uh, uh, hearing. In fact, I think it was to question this Fiona Hill person. Anyway, before the thing started, uh, Schiff, who is chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, forced a Republican who doesn't happen to be on that committee, but he's on a very relevant committee. He's on the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, Florida Congressman Gates forced him to leave the room. The Democrats are not just keeping the American public out of the discussion, out of the impeachment effort. They're keeping the Republicans elected to serve you in Washington, the Republicans who would have a vote on impeachment. The Democrats are even saying that guy, even he, can not be part of hear a, this hearing. Folks, these people are on a mission. They do not care what the evidence is. As I said many, many times, I'm going to say it again. Impeachment effort of the Democrat Party has nothing whatsoever to do with President Trump's phone call with Ukrainian President Zelensky on July 25th. Nothing to do with it at all. This is just the Democrats' latest effort, which has been ongoing since before President Trump even took the oath of office in January 2017. Endless effort to get him out. Every other effort has failed. Democrats are desperate. They know he'll probably win in 2020, and they don't want to face that, so they're just trying to drive him out. I, I just think they have no idea how enraged the voters in America are who supported President Trump. Harking back to the most idiotic statement in the entire Democrat debate last night by Cory Booker, who actually said the line, I played it for you earlier, if you happen to be listening, uh, played it for you earlier, he said that there needed to be a, um, have an impeachment process that was fair, that will help unite the American people. Truly delusional. Last topic for today, very quickly I want to hit is LeBron James' dangerous ignorance. And, and I just got to tell you folks, LeBron James is a wonderful, famous, wonderful basketball player. I'm glad he's great at basketball. But you remember the story we talked about last week where a Houston Rockets, the Houston Rockets general manager named Daryl Morey put a tweet out and it was just a simple, small tweet. It had a symbol. I don't even know what the symbol was, but basically it said, you know, stand with the freedom fighters of Hong Kong or something like that. It was this guy, Daryl Morey, general manager of the Rockets, saying Americans should stand with the Hong Kong freedom fighters. So there you have that one little tweet drove the left out of their minds. And so you had all this commentary and the, the, the uh, NBA, different announcements. First they were saying, well, he's got a free speech right. Well, he shouldn't have said that. This is all against a backdrop of a tournament going on in China and not wanting to offend the Chinese. The Chinese were outraged. Their consulate in Houston told Maury he had to take it back. And he did kind of backpedal and say, well, I didn't know all the facts. Let me remind you what's happening in Hong Kong. It is over one quarter, over 25% of their citizens in the streets protesting. They do not want more communist control over Hong Kong. They 
did succeed in pushing back against the bill that kind of kicked it all off, which was a bill in Hong Kong that said basically, if China decides they want to interrogate any person in Hong Kong for alleged wrongdoing, they were trying to get Hong Kong to pass a bill to say, the moment China says we want to talk to somebody, we want to interrogate somebody, uh, Hong Kong would cough them up, the citizen up, and send them back to China. And the people said no, because they recognized this is just a Communist Party, totalitarian Communist Party gimmick, or ruse to crack down on people who speak up for freedom in Hong Kong. So back to our story, LeBron James, who is a good basketball player, actually tweeted out, and I just want to read you the impossibly idiotic statement. LeBron James, at times, this is LeBron James criticizing Daryl Morey, the Houston Rockets general manager. At times, there are ramifications for the negative that can happen when you're not thinking about others when you only think about yourself. I don't want to get into a word or sentence feud with Daryl Morey, but I believe he wasn't educated on the situation at hand, and he spoke. So many people could have been harmed, not only financially, but physically, emotionally, spiritually. So just be careful what we tweet and what we say and what we do. Even though, yes, we do have freedom of speech, it can be a lot of negative that comes with it. Okay. My grandmother, the English teacher, would have had a field day with correcting those two paragraphs I just read to you. But far more importantly, this guy, a millionaire many times over, paid millions of dollars to play because he lives in a free market economy and a free country that lets him make millions of dollars because there are enough Americans who can afford to buy tickets to show up at his basketball games and Americans who can afford to own teams that he plays on, Americans who can buy all the gear with his name on it and make him wealthy. This guy stood up for communist China over the Hong Kong freedom fighters. It is a pathetic statement about his comprehension of the virtues and blessings of freedom that have blessed his life in America, complete cluelessness about what living in China is like. This is a guy so driven to protect the NBA, to protect the NBA having games over there and they wanna make money and they wanna have their products sold in China taking a stand and this is you know not to me but to some young americans he's kind of an icon he's kind of the guy you know he's the one of the most famous basketball players ever and he puts out this kind of economic kindergarten level stupidness and because he is completely economically illiterate does not understand what the hong kongers are fighting for which is freedom which he's been blessed with his whole life he feels virtuous he's signaling how virtuous he is to stand up for china honestly i wish some people who got so upset in the nba about daryl morey's correct tweet about stand with the hong kongers would stand up for the people of Hong Kong and point out that LeBron James really ought to just play basketball because he has absolutely no idea what he's talking about. He is, and for him to throw in that phrase, when you think about yourself, when you think only about yourself, he is the one thinking only about himself. I urge you, if you haven't gone to our website, it's americacanwetalk.org, there's a great long story of some guy who went over and spent three days in Hong Kong 
kind of planted in the middle of the protesters in Hong Kong, understanding their hearts and minds, understanding the freedom they're trying to stand up for. That is worthy of a good read. It's worthy of understanding what the people in Hong Kong are trying to stand for and will help you see how impossibly, cluelessly idiotic LeBron James was in that statement. If he had an ounce of honesty and had a bit of economic advice, a little bit of learning, a little bit of knowledge of the world, he ought to issue an apology for standing up against for China and against the freedom fighters of Hong Kong. And now, my friends, at the end of every show, I always try to tell you why the stories we talked about today matter to you. Today's stories, why they matter to you. The Democrat debate, doozies, the core Democrat problem, life in Main Street in America is good, looking up, it is not filled with hatred of President Trump. And so Steyer's meltdown on income inequality doesn't ring true, sounds angry and hollow. Warren Sanders' Medicare for all as a cost for utopia isn't even believable. Booker wanting impeachment of Trump to be fair and bring Americans together. Could, and that does win the doozy of all doozies statements out of that uh, debate last night or presentation on CNN. The Democrats are sealing the deal four more years for President Trump. The coup via impeachment ongoing. The update, Pelosi announces no House vote on impeachment this week. She's afraid, and that's what she's saying. That's because she knows there's no case and Democrat incumbents in Trump districts are afraid to vote for impeachment. With no House vote, House demands for witnesses or documents have no legal teeth. They are just partisan agitation requests, which is why Pence, Pompeo, and Giuliani have refused to comply with their unjust demands. Refusals to comply with unjust demands are not, as the Democrats are going to argue, are not obstruction of justice. The issuance of unjust demands closed-door testimony, anonymous and unconfronted whistleblowers, refusal to permit GOP participation, those, my friends, constitute obstruction of justice. And the coup via impeachment also, Americans are coming to realize there is not a shred of truth, honesty, or integrity to any aspect of the impeachment inquiry. It is a fraud, a scripted political deceit that has no substantive legal merit whatsoever it is entirely and only the latest democrat ruling class deep state effort to reverse the american people's choice in 2016 for president the american people must rise up make it known that they see through this charade and demand that it stop and finally lebron's embarrassing and dangerous ignorance lebron james is truly one of the best basketball players in history he's a cultural icon and i'm happy for him his basketball iq is off the charts his economic IQ, his knowledge and understanding of world history, of American exceptionalism, of the power and privilege of individual freedom, compared to the misery of collectivism and totalitarianism in all its forms, is embarrassingly lacking. He knows only what pop culture and the NBA's lockstep PC liberalism has taught him. James means well, but an American icon spouting ignorance is destructive. Maybe. I know what, maybe LeBron James should be invited to listen to America Can We Talk. And that, my friends, is my show for today. Thank you so much for listening to America Can We Talk. Like every day, just feel blessed to have the opportunity to talk to you every day about the great, extraordinary uniqueness of America, the gift of liberty, the best, most extraordinary country on earth, this experiment in human liberty, which is America. I defend it every day. I urge you to do it too, and to tune in every day 
to everything we talk about in the show because I'm always speaking up for America because America matters. Talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you-